Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. I'm here with Sonny Vanderbeck. Sonny, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And this is the second or third try I think we've had at <laughs> scheduling this conversation. So I'm glad we could get it on the books. I'll do a, a quick background for the listeners who aren't familiar. Sonny is an investor, entrepreneur, best-selling author, and former military leader focused on accelerating the growth of mid-market companies and creating best-in-class Built to Last Businesses. He's also the co-founder of Satori Capital, which we will get into later, a multi-strategy investment firm founded on the principles of conscious capitalism. And, and Sonny, before we get into your background, which is fascinating and different than probably what a lot of folks would expect, before we went live, I was giving you a compliment. Your team, some of the folks that you have around you have been incredibly generous and, and helpful and nice to me personally and, and other folks that I know. You know, How do you think about this ties into this concept of, of conscious capitalism that we'll get into, but I'm curious as a business owner myself with employees, how do you create that type of culture where you have full confidence that when you send these people out into the field, that they're going to represent you so well? Is that something that you you think about a lot that you reflect on that you work on? First, I appreciate the compliment. You know, we, I think we always aspire to be better than we are. And that's probably step one is, is just realizing that we can all be better versions of ourselves, both both individually and collectively. I think beyond that, you know, your question about what does it take? It does require one to be very deliberate about what you want to create. Good cultures don't happen accidentally. Great teams don't happen accidentally. And I've learned this the, the hard way. It requires constant vigilance. In an ideal situation, if you can get clear about who you want to be as a company and, and what you stand for and what matters to you. The starting place for this are these, these hiring moments. Like imagine you've got a candidate that's perfect on all fronts, but they don't quite fit the culture that you said that you wanted. Like now what do you do? But they're perfect and they're going to do the job well and you've spent all this time hiring or trying to hire them. I mean, you can't find anybody. You've got the perfect skill set sitting right in front of you. They've proven they could done it, they've done it before but they're probably not going to fit the culture. What do you do? Those are the real moments on culture building. And I don't get it right all the time. We don't get it right all the time as a team, but one can certainly try and be very careful with that compromise. Um, and generally my experience, by the way, has been when I make that compromise, because we can always you know, tell ourselves this story about, well, it's different this time, or I've got a good reason or what have you. Like That never pays off for me. And I still like have been hiring leaders for 
more than 20 years now. And I still try to convince myself of this sometimes. Well, this time it's different. Like, no, it's not. If you bring somebody into the team that doesn't fit the culture, there will be a cost. So that is, if you don't do that, the rest of it doesn't work. But then on top of that, it's a sort of constant reminder, a constant reinforcement. And what's really amazing is when you get to a point where it's not that it becomes self-sustaining, but that everybody on the team carries that same flag. When they walk into an interview or a development review with a team member or, or what have you, it's as important to them as it is to everyone else. And I think that's the moment where it goes from, hey, this is pretty good to this is amazing. It's not when it's driven by just a founder or a CEO, but when everybody on the team continues to strive for how can we be a better version of the culture that we have today. And in fact, recently we had just a single question that our, our leaders were chatting with their teams about instead of doing you know the big mega survey and I've got 700 questions for you and I'm going to do big data analytics and all this stuff. Tell me one thing we can do to make it a better experience to be at Satori. Just give me one thing that you get actionable feedback out of that. And, and often you get things that you didn't realize that just weren't, weren't on your radar. So to, to sum all this up, definitely intentionality, definitely constant vigilance, and you're looking for that threshold moment when the organization begins to guard its own culture. And it's not just the founders trying to guard the culture. And this actually came up at the family office conference that I was referring to earlier. Somebody made a comment on the stage that I, I thought would dovetail well into this conversation. Obviously, you are very intentional about culture. You take it very seriously. You go deep there. To what extent that do you think about when you bring people into the firm that not only they're aligned, but they're also expanding on that culture? Yeah. So, so I think there's a, a starting place, really two questions. One is, is this person open to learning and growth, right? It's, it's one thing to have a culture that has rigorous adherence to process. And there are times and places when that is absolutely important. But that, that entrepreneurial spirit, that search for continued development matters a lot. And so this idea around open to learning and growth, so one of my shorthands here is I think people that are curious by nature thrive in our culture, but there's no best culture. There's just what culture do you want to build and how do you want to bring it together? And, and in our case, this curiosity about the world we live in becomes a defining feature of our culture. And I think the second piece of this goes back to the question you asked, it would sort of implied like, hey, but how do you make sure you don't get a monoculture with a bunch of groupthink and everybody looks at the world the same way and has the same background experiences and, and those kinds of things. And I'll start with, if you look at the backgrounds of our team, it certainly helps that I've, I've got a non-traditional background, as do most of our leaders have had a broader experience in the world. And so we've seen the value that gets created out of the curiosity and those are broad set of learning. So I think that the diversity of perspective and willing to learn actually fit together. Because if you didn't have a culture that was open to a new perspective, it doesn't matter if you bring in somebody who looks at the world a different way. You've got to actually be willing to, to listen and say, huh, hadn't thought about that. Let's dig more into it. There is some balance here. I've seen it be overdone where you end up with this just sort of giant argument fest and everybody wants to argue about every detail and you can't, kind of can't make any forward progress because you're not at all on the same page. So again, this is sort of in much like salt in degrees, a little bit of it can be extraordinary. None of it or too much turns out pretty poorly. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, your last point reminds me of what's going on at Bridgewater. I've got a friend that works there and they have this radical transparency and Ray Dalio, incredible thinker, but maybe taken to such extreme that now they can't find any steady leadership because they've created this culture of almost adversity, honestly, internally. Let's go into the non-traditional background because I think when people hear the bio or they go to the website, they see private equity and you're in kind of Dallas and you work with a lot of big family offices, you don't have the typical fact pattern. So we'd love to hear a little bit of a background yourself in terms of, I know you went to school early, your military service, transitioning into tech. If you could just give us a little bit of background there, that'd be great. Sure. Sure. And I'll extend that into how in the world that we end up starting Satori as well. So I, I graduated 
to high school and started college at 16. That probably actually wasn't one of my better choices. I was trying to get out of high school. I was bored and turns out, you know, AP chemistry at 8 a.m. with 400 kids is, is not any better. But nonetheless, it's what I did. And I did that for a year in an engineering degree. And I was kind of bored and disillusioned and decided I wanted to do the most different thing I could possibly imagine from this engineering degree. And it turns out that was to go be an army ranger, now, which was, was a little nuts because I, I couldn't run a mile. Like, and I ate, you know, typical college kid diet and pizza and beer and what have you. But I was committed to doing it. And, and I went and did it. And it turns out the whatever mix of psychological makeup one requires to be successful at that kind of endeavor, I, I guess I had it. I was, or I was just too stubborn to quit. I, maybe that was it, but that worked too. So I was an army ranger for, for four years. Extraordinary experience. It was, it was the thing that I needed and absolutely pushed me sort of out at the edge of my boundaries over and over again until the last day I was there. And four years was plenty. So I, I get out of the military. I go back to school for a little bit. And I, I got a job offer at Microsoft. I had a friend that said, hey, I, I think you'd do great here. Why don't you interview? And I was you know, reasonably good with technology. Back to the curiosity, I was a curious person. So I was always learning more. So I went to work at Microsoft for a couple of years. And the team that I led there in 94 to 96, we were working on this crazy thing called the internet. And I had an idea that like this was actually going to change some things in the, in the world. And maybe people were going to use their computer to buy stuff. At the time, it was kind of silly, but you know, it was just one of those, I couldn't unsee it. In fact, people all, often ask me, like, why did you leave Microsoft? And Because that was the sort of next piece of the story is I left Microsoft and started a company in a spare room in my house with a couple of co-founders, Michelle and Jason, and we went for it. And it, it turned out, as you, you know, we know now that the the intersection of business and the internet was complicated and had lots of opportunity. And we had a great team for that. And so we grew that business 40% every quarter for three and a half years. And just to like bring that home, here's what that means. We doubled headcount every 120 days for years. It was absolutely wild and intense. We went public in 99. I remained as CEO at, at 27 which was relatively uncommon at the time and a big, you know, eyes wide open thing to go from focused on customers and employees and, and product and sort of business focused stuff to have a very significant portion of my time focused on the capital markets. Sold that business a couple of years later to another public company, another tech business. And I got to buy it back a year after that. That whole wild ride is probably the first chapter or two in, in a book I've written called Selling Without Selling Out, How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. My guess is we'll talk a little more about that in a bit, but that was a really interesting experience. I got a do-over on that, which many don't. So bought the company back with some private equity partners and ran it for another four years as a private company. And we built just for context, like, hey, what did y'all do? First enterprise-ready cloud computing we had developed in 2004 and launched commercially in 2005. So that was the kind of stuff that, that we worked on. After I sold that business, a gentleman named Randy Eisenman and I had been kind of hanging out. We called it business dating. We, he was the CEO as well. And we just, we just really hit it off. We didn't know what was going to come from it, but let's spend some time together. And as entrepreneurs do, sometimes we started to complain. Now, the, the entrepreneurial complaining is often kind of constructive because we're, we want to see the world in a different way. And sometimes we'll actually do something about it. Now, and that's what came out of our conversation. What we saw in the capital markets was that there were three fundamental issues. And, and this really spreads across many asset classes. First, that the people making the investment decisions often are not able to access the perspective of, what's it take to do the work? Like it's one thing to show up to a board meeting and eat a free sandwich and tell somebody, hey, maybe your sales force should be different. It's entirely another thing to go do that work. I mean, Randy and I were fortunate in our cases, and he spent time as a professional investor and as a founder of a company. So that was item number one. Like, let's build a team and an investment business who has done the work that our investments are doing. Because we think we'll be better investors. We'll make better due diligence decisions, and we'll be able to actually create value. The second piece was around time horizon. We saw over and over again, decisions get made not to maximize value but because of some fund specific or investor specific need that had nothing to do with the business. 
and we found that this was very pervasive. It was pervasive in measurement systems on public companies. It was pervasive in fund life, in you know private companies and private equity and venture. And, and what it ultimately meant was this short-term mindset was destroying value for investors and destroying value for the rest of the company. And then the third piece is conscious capitalism, which in its essence is, we can look at it a couple of ways. One, like business is not an ATM. There is more to it than it's some esoteric entity that spits cash out, and that's really all it is. It's a pretty complex system made up of stakeholders. And if you create value for customers, for employees, for your community, for your suppliers, whatever it is that your stakeholders, people that are involved in your business, if you can create value for that group, everything works out great for the shareholders. Like that, profit is a measure of value creation inside your entire ecosystem. And I'll give you one other nugget on this. The companies where employees love to work there, customers are super happy, all the other stakeholders are in some way enriched by the relationship, but they have sad investor, that is a very rare outcome. Usually it's the opposite. When customers love a company and employees love a company, the investors also love it. So that's, we wanted to tap that spirit of, hey, there's more to a business than just what's in a P&L. There's more to a hedge fund than just what's in months tear sheet. These are complex things. And if we can understand this sort of ecosystem back to the beginning, we'll be better investors and we'll leave the world better than we found it. So I, I want to tie this back, if we could rewind the tape into your military service. And you were a, a platoon leader. Obviously, you were young in that space. I mean, how much of that experience being a leader within that world and ecosystem inform how you thought about private investing? I would say that there are a couple of connections there. Number one, but both as an individual ranger and as a section leader, you learn to care about others first, right? So, so here's an example. We have in the military, there's a phrase, leaders eat last. And that's an actual real thing. Like you go in the back of the line and if there's food, then you get to eat. And if your team needed to eat all the food, well, you just don't eat. That's just how it is. Leaders eat last. And so this gets back to sort of caring for others. You don't normally think about the military as a deep caring for others. But if you actually look at how it works, like what are people trying to do that went there? Care for others on a very large scale. What are we trying to do individually as leaders? Care for others on a very small scale. And so I think it it drove a good bit of that energy of selflessness and and placing others' needs ahead of your own. I think that the second piece that came out of it is just this willingness to keep going. When we started Satori, so it's like it's easy to look at it now and it's big and we've got, you know, multiple different businesses and have had said some modicum of success along the way. This message I described with these three, you know, different things of long-term capital, you know, operating focus. Um, and conscious capitalism, we started telling the world about that in 2008. So we'd go to meetings and people would, we'd give one or two reactions. Either they'd pat us on the head and go, oh, that's sweet. Or they would say, hey, we're buying physical gold. We're worried about the dollar. Like people were buying food. It was not the best time in the world that, to have an unlimited time horizon with a to totally new structure. But we were committed to what we were doing. So it's part of the, you know, learning from the military was just like never give up just you just keep going and keep going and keep going and and so that began to build on itself um and, and so ultimately turned out just fine but we had to go long periods of time without results on on the capital side and, and that was okay that was fine we were the mission mattered most and so that's where we put our focus and our energy and before we get to kind of the current focus of the firm I'd love to get a snapshot of what Microsoft was like in the 90s. And if you could, to the extent that you had exposure, inform the leadership style of Bill Gates, because he was still running the firm at the time, versus what do you think is happening within big tech today, which I know is a, is a big question, but it has been a transition of leadership generationally within that entire ecosystem. So what was Microsoft like in 1994? It was a, Microsoft was a giant startup. It certainly you know, didn't run like a 20-person company, but Bill can and would zoom all the way down into a detail that in a sort of classic Fortune 50 business, 
no one would ever expect nor want the CEO to go get involved in an engineering detail. But that was that was his style. So it was very much sort of lead from the front, paint a clear vision, and absolutely be willing to zoom into a micro detail if he thought that was important. Here's what I saw broadly happen in in tech. We went from these sort of entrepreneurial spirit, these, these very successful businesses run by the entrepreneur for whatever reason. And this happened to me too. So I've, I've sort of lived this experience. The outside-in pressure was y'all need to get some professional managers around here and get people from Dow and P&G or what have you. And that that's definitely what these companies need. And so we had a, I don't know, a decade of the bias and the direction was towards replacing irascible founders with professional managers who looked the part, acted the part, and with a bit of of history, didn't get a lot of good results. As it turns out, in these tech businesses, that founder's instinct is often exactly what it needs. And a quick sanity check on this is go look at the 10 or 20 most valuable tech businesses in the world and ask, well, who runs that place now? And this pattern starts to emerge. And so this pendulum swung from get rid of the founders. And you saw this in the venture community. They were like, as quick as we could get rid of these founders, we're going to get some professional managers in here that know how to speak our language and so forth. Well, that pendulum as a sort of decade unfolded started to swing back the other way radically where, you know, for the last, I don't know, five or eight years has been this really tremendous focus on the founder as the savior. Now, I'm a believer that it's balance is useful here. They are both useful energies. At big scale, you need to be able to run reliably and repeatably. And when you lose this mindset, you lose something important. What are the ways to tell, oh yeah, okay, this is in the conversation now. I don't know, five, six years ago, Bain sponsored a book that was written by, you know, one of the Bain partners that was about the insurgent mentality and recapturing the, you know, essence and spirit of the founder and sort of trying to bring this mindset back into corporate America. So it's the point being, like we've had these wild swings from to deep focus on the founder to get rid of them as fast as possible or back to deep focus on the founder. We've got enough data now to kind of tell what works. You can kind of see it play out. The hard part is this. You don't know if the founder is crazy or brilliant until some time passes, right? Lots of founders stick unreasonably on something and flame out horribly because they're unwilling to change. And lots of founders create trillion dollar businesses because they're unwilling to change and they can see the world clearly. So like anything, there's a lot of nuance here, but I got the version of Microsoft that was an insurgent that felt like an underdog in almost all of its fights. I also got the mic version of Microsoft that was actually long-term in their strategy. Without going through a sort of history lesson in Microsoft, back in those days, there were many, many sectors where Microsoft wasn't taken seriously. And I got to see and participate in the playbook of how they would enter a market and get half before anyone realized what happened. So I want to draw a comparison to what you just described succinctly and what we're seeing in big tech to this investment banking, private equity. It's interesting. I'm listening to David Rubenstein's book and private equity used to be the wild west. It was cowboy country and it's become now a very staid, mathematically driven business. What was your experience going through the investment banking private equity journey as an entrepreneur? And then I'd like to tie that into how you think about being a professional investor now. Yeah, I so I had an experience, I actually learned some great, great lessons about working with investment bankers. And one of those is if you know how to sell stuff, you know how to be an investment banker or at least the beginnings of it, which means if your instincts are telling you this is not how a sales process works, pay close attention. Very brief side story. We had a, a deal on the table for my company for, I don't know, it was around a billion, billion two, billion three, something like that. Pretty exciting, probably good fit. And the CFO of the, this is a very large company that was the acquire um, or the potential acquire. CFO was involved. The business unit head was involved. Corp dev was involved. Our, you know, bulge bracket investment bank was saying, look, this is how it is. These are the right people. And we were asking questions like, well, yeah, but where's the decision maker? And they're like, oh, no, 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 this is just how it all works. 
And we would continue to ask, well, where's the decision maker and, and all those kinds of things. And long story short, the business unit, you know, there's three amigos, the, the corp dev and business unit and CFO took it to the CEO, which unbeknownst to us had no idea any of this was going on. Like we're post LOI at this point. And he killed it in five minutes. He basically looked at the, the head of the business unit and said, wait, I gave you like a quarter of a billion dollars to go build this business from scratch. And now you're telling me you can't do it. And you need to spend another more than a billion dollars to acquire your way into my into this industry. Get out of my office. And that was the end of the deal. It was over. So part of the learning was, hey, some of these instincts around you know how things get done are still good. So that was an interesting experience, but I love to learn. So having, you know, many investment bankers over time, and in my case, you know, mostly sort of on the public end, they were a fun crowd to learn from because the stuff they were working on and thinking about every day was not what I was working on and thinking about. And yes, it was even in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s was still pretty cowboy world for sure. You know, and then when we took on private equity, I think at the time, so this would have been 02, I think is when we closed that investment. It was not yet very formulaic. The majority of the industry kind of wasn't formulaic. And, and in particular, the overlap between private equity and tech was nearly zero. So we didn't, you didn't have these sort of private equity tech investors as a thing yet that had come into the world. So that was interesting because, you know, in, in our case, they also had manufacturing companies and telecom companies, and we had this recurring revenue business that was pretty different. And to their credit, they were very careful. So I think I got lucky on this front. They were very careful about the line between advice and direction. At the end of most conversations, it came down to, hey, Sonny, what do you want to do? And they would generally support that. They did want to know that we had done our diligence and it wasn't a sort of five-minute thought process that got us to the decision. But generally, even when we disagreed, they they would support us. And part of that was our results were were ones that one would want to support. So that that helped. So, you know, I think I learned a good bit from spending time with people who only spent time in the capital markets. Whereas you got to sort of begin to understand how they think about the world, where their priorities are, what does success look like? I think this is something that that many owners and entrepreneurs, it doesn't cross their mind to think, this person that I'm working with, what is their leadership team want from them? Or what do their owners want from them? Or what do their investors want from them? Right. If, if I've got empathy for other people, like one of the things you quickly go to is what does it mean for them to be successful? How do we get a good outcome? I had a great, I was with a, a, a leadership team actually this week of a prospective investment. And I, I really appreciated the question they asked because the essence of what they asked was what does success look like for y'all? You're thinking about making an investment in our company. If things go the way you want them to go, What's the five-year conversation look like? Like they were really trying to get in and understand how we were wired, what we cared about, who we cared about, et cetera, which, which in our case is wonderful that they asked the question because it elevates the conversation to more than just a transaction. And I think that would be the, the one other thing that I would say of sort of all this time, both as a public company dealing with investment bankers and a little bit with private equity, although less so on that end, very transactional in nature, which was kind of opposite for me. My personal wiring is to be long-term and to just assume if you put stuff, good stuff in the world, that good stuff is going to come back to you. Like these are a golden rule, karma, whatever you want to talk about it, just basic beliefs about the way the world works that if you're in service of others, then your stuff's going to work out just fine too. And, and that was not a world where, where that was kind of top of mind, particularly, you know, back then. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? there may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. Yeah, and I'd love to dig a little bit deeper. You referenced, what about being in a leadership capacity as a publicly traded company relative to what it was as a, being an entrepreneur? It's a very different world to live in. It certainly is. I knew that I was not in the right place when I was in a coat and tie. And for context, like this was tech. We were, you know, 
flip-flops and board shorts and t-shirts. And that was the culture in, in tech. Back to the point about lessons from Microsoft, learn from there. They just didn't care. They're like, we don't care. Just do your work. To now I'm in a tie and I'm on this prop plane and I'm headed from one tiny town to an even tinier town to go have yet another meeting with an analyst that hadn't done any work, didn't really understand our industry at all, certainly didn't know anything about our company and go take them through a pitch deck for an hour and maybe they would buy some shares of stock or maybe not. And I'm in this like 12 seat prop plane and the blades on the engines are right next to me and they're roaring the engines up and they're de-icing this plane. And like, I live in Texas. I don't really like to be cold. In fact, I promised myself in ranger school I'll never be cold again. It didn't work, but at least helped me get through the day. And so I'm like in this coat and tie, shivering, going to a horrible meeting that was probably going to turn into nothing. I'm like, okay, what am I doing? Like, this is not, this is not great. I, I think I would be a little different public company CEO today. And I think we've seen the evolution of the balance in the relationship between leadership teams of public companies and public investors more common now for companies to say, look, this is how we're going to do it. And we're looking for shareholders and investors that want to get on this, this path and this plan. And so, so it was interesting and, you know, and I was also 27. So the whole thing was just, it was all new to me and I was learning and trying to figure it out. So they, they started fed the curiosity urge for me for a while, but it can be, it can be a tough transition from a you know customer and product and team focused CEO to a, a pretty significant amount of your time on capital markets. And, and one of my lessons learned, I spent too much time doing that as the long and short of it, way too much time doing that at the urging of our, you know, investment bankers and analyst coverage and sell side and all that. They of course sort of wanted us out there. And so lesson learned on that. And now let's segue to this conscious capitalism concept. You alluded to it earlier. You referenced some of the the elements, but there's really kind of three main pillars. And I think it's all been informed by this journey that you just took us through with your own personal history and, and how you use that to inform your approach to being an investor today. Yeah. So I think conscious leadership is an important place to start because if the leader is not trying to be more conscious about who they are, how they show up, what kind of leader they are, what kind of person they are, none of the rest of it's going to work. You can't just bolt this on. It, it does, in fact, come, have to come from the top. And that brings us to the next piece, which is conscious culture. I think we talked a good bit about conscious culture, right? If you Now that you know that terminology, sort of think about the conversation we had in the beginning about being very deliberate and very thoughtful about who do we want to be? What are we trying to do in the world? Who should be on the team? Those kinds of things. So conscious culture is a second pillar. And then finally, this concept around stakeholders. And really, it's trying to extend empathy and understanding to each of these stakeholders. It's this sort of fundamental idea that, that business is not you know, a widget in, a dollar out. It's actually an ecosystem. It's a pretty complex thing. And I was fortunate. With, I grew up in a book house and so science house. And so got to learn lessons about ecology growing up. And, and we see this in you know ecology. If you I don't know, spray the pesticide and kill all the bugs in the garden, you kill the good ones too. The system kind of breaks down, doesn't work very well. If you reframe business as a system and think about it as a system and say, who are the participants in the system? What are their hopes, dreams, wants, needs, aspirations, and how can I participate in that? How can I support that? You start to get transformative outcomes. Well, you know, on the employee side, you get these amazing cultures, but it also means you have to be a little deeper and actually have to care about these, these people, these humans, I mean, not just where they are now and you know, did they get healthcare and those kinds of things, but who do they want to be as they go out in the world? Like what, what are your team's aspirations and how can we be supportive of development in these individual teams or individual people? And you just begin to start extending that to each of these stakeholders. And I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples that may bring it to light because it sounds like I'm a professor and you need a whiteboard and I'll break it down for you. On the employee front, we've got one of our portfolio companies. They are very committed to this idea of a living wage. And that is very easy to, to become a politicized conversation. And that is not at all where they're coming from. Here's what the CEO said. 
if somebody can work in my manufacturing plant for 20 years and be a great employee and still struggle with money, that's my problem, not theirs. I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting, right? When you put it in that context to say how my system doesn't allow me to pay this person who's been a great team member for a long time, enough to not like have deep worries about money. That's, yeah, that's a thing that goes back to this conscious leadership piece. So they saw this opportunity. Now, what they didn't see, and this is where the conscious capitalism thing starts to, to light up. What they didn't say is, well, let's transfer value from one stakeholder to another. That's the old mentality. The old mentality is, you know, sort of zero sum and anything I do for one, I got to take from another. What she said was, okay, what do I have to do to be productive enough to pay these people enough? They don't have to worry about money anymore, that they have this constant pressure in their life. And so that's what they did next to go figure out what kind of productivity do they need and how do they get it? So they embarked on this journey of training and learning and development and growth for her team and the plant that for those that want to participate, they had the training available for them to be able to increase their skills so that they could create enough value individually so that the company would be very happy to pay them, you know, substantially more money. I mean, we're, we're seeing people that 20, 25% raises and they can go as fast as a year to do this. That's a conscious move to say, I'm not just going to move stuff around and transfer from one to the other because I feel guilty. This is, I'm the CEO. I understand the system. It's my job to improve it. How do we create new value in the world? I think it's a big part of this stakeholder thing about identifying opportunities for net new value. So, so that's one on the employee side to just say, this creates value for every stakeholder when we do this, because it didn't take money from A and give to B. It created new money through this more thoughtful approach. On the supplier side, and we invest in, in lots of industries, both examples I'll give are, are manufacturing. We had a portfolio company that bought a lot of very specialized steel. And the way that most companies in their industry bought that steel was effectively an auction. Like it's steel. Whoever's got the lowest price, I'll buy it from you. They instead went to one of their suppliers who they knew had laid out a strategic plan to add more value to the steel, which, which in this in steel business, that means I'm going to do some work on the steel before I send it to you. Because they realized like, hey, we're in a commodity business. We've got to get some more margin out of what we're doing or we're going to main, be commoditized forever. So our CEO went to that company and said, hey, I've got an idea for you. I want to buy all of my steel from you, which was utter crazy talk. I'm going to buy all of my steel for you. And I'm going to let you do some work on the steel, which means I'm going to pay you more money, not less for the steel. But to do that, you've got to go buy this big piece of capital equipment to actually do the work that I need you to do. And this piece of equipment costs double the annual earnings of our portfolio company. And so the supplier was like, wow, that sounds awesome. Right, we become a big flagship customer for them. It lets them start to move margins up. They had a low cost of capital, so it was easy for them to buy this thing. So our portfolio company didn't have to have a $30 million capital budget for the year to buy this piece of equipment. And by moving that work to our supplier, we became their most important customer. Now, here's the other piece. I think that one was roughly economically neutral for our portfolio company, although certainly great for improving the fabric and the relationship. Here was the missing piece that is not obvious from the outside. That steel often went on allocation. And what allocation means is you can't buy it because there's not enough of it. And this industry, when steel was on allocation, the market price of the end product was much higher, which meant all the margin opportunity over long cycles in the business came when the steel supply was short. Well, guess what? If you're the largest high margin, highest margin customer of a supplier, guess who gets all the steel? We got all the steel. So revenues grew from 60 million to 225 million in four years. And it was all organic growth in an industry that grew six to 8% a year. And still at the end, people still thought the company was nuts for letting their partner do that piece. They're like, why don't you do that? You'd save all this money. And you would just see these other industry participants like not be able to fundamentally understand what we were trying to do. So that's a conscious relationship with a supplier. Let me figure out what they're trying to do in the world, what their objectives are, and see if there's a way to build a new relationship that supports that, that also increases value for me. Again, we're back to net new value in the world. If you come at 
the world through a zero-sum game mentality that any dollar I get is taken from somewhere else and any dollar I give that's just gone forever, you'll never get there. When you see the opportunity to create new value in the world, that's how you unlock these stakeholder relationships. And was that the motivation behind the book that you referenced earlier? Kind of the selling without selling? And the question I always ask people that come on the show, what motivated you to take all the time and energy and brain damage to actually getting this thing done? Because I know it's a ton of work. Yeah, I promise it wasn't so people would think I was cool at cocktail hour. It, so, so here's what this book is about. The process of taking on an investor or selling a business is by and large, one of the few irrevocable things we will do in our life. When you think about all the decisions you make, most of them you can unwind. This is one you can't plan on a second shot. You can't plan on a buy it back. If you get it wrong, you will live with that decision for the rest of your life. Here's the problem. The ecosystem around this is built entirely around money stuff. And nowhere in the process is figuring out what it is that you care about most, figuring out what you want success to be after a transaction, doing reverse due diligence. So the process generally is optimized around money and speed and certainty of close. And everybody that's involved in it optimizes it around that. But I can tell you, and for the families that are listening that were around when they sold their business, there's a lot of long faces that come in the year after. And the stories are usually, I got plenty of money, but they dismantled three generations worth of work. Yeah, I got plenty of money, but they fired all my favorite people. And I got employees are crying, calling me crying because they've destroyed this business. What happens the day after close is actually more important than the day of close. What I realized for myself, and as I went to go talk to other CEOs and founders and families, I found to be very pervasively true. There is more in this business than just money. There are other things we care about. And I don't care what you care about. That's not, I'm not going to moralize whatever your priorities are. My point in the book, though, is just to figure out what they are. Figure out what you actually care about and ask for it because no one else is going to do it for you. There are some things only the CEO can do or that only the owner can do. And I promise you, no investment banker will stand in front of you and say, well, you could sell the company XYZ that's going to pay the most money, but they're going to destroy your culture and you're going to hate yourself a year from now and feel like you sold out. No one's going to say that to you. That's not their job. This is not an indictment of of the attorneys and accountants and investment bankers, they're doing their job. But it's your job to figure out what do I want to see after close? What happens to the culture? You know, what happens to my customers? What happens to my suppliers? And so here's the book. I wrote the book I wanted to read 20 years ago when I sold my company for the first time and I sold it to the wrong people because there was nobody to talk to. There was no book to read. There was no guidance. And I got it wrong. And the second time wasn't perfect, but it was a lot better. And now in our day-to-day world, you know, one of our businesses is, is private equity. And so we're faced with this question regularly in both directions, with companies in which we invest and when we have a divestiture. Let's talk about the not money stuff. Like what is important to you? What do you want to get done? What are you trying to do? And, and I'm going to give you the opposite. Like I'm going to tell you a vignette. And like, you can't make this up. Like sometimes life is funnier than the story you could make up. So so we've got this investment manufacturing company and one of their competitors came to us at a conference and just said, hey, we're kind of interested in your portfolio company. You know, we think we might want to buy it. I'm like, okay, sure, I'll listen. I'm, you know, I'll talk to anybody. And I start asking these kind of dangerous questions. Like, well, why do you want to buy it? And that's not usually a question that's that's on our industry's mind. They're thinking about, well, how much do you want to pay for it? I'm asking them stuff like, well, why do you want to buy it? Like, well, we just think there's a lot of capacity in the industry and and maybe we should take some capacity out of the industry. I'm like, hmm, all right. Well, like, what do you think that means for the plants? You know, we had a couple of plants, uh, one in Texas, one in Ohio. What do you think that means for, for plants? And like, well, you know, we don't really need them. I mean, we've got plants nearby. So, you know, we'll probably just shut them down. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, whatever. I'm, 
like I'm trying really hard to not respond to any of this and just be okay with everything they're telling me. And I'm like, well, you know, what about this like team and back office and leadership and all that stuff? And they're like, well, you know, we're kind of good on that front too. So I don't think we need any of that. Okay, great. You know, let's stay in touch and just smile and nod and shake their hand. These people told me they wanted to buy the company and literally dismantle it, shut down all the plants, fire all the employees, get rid of the entire thing. This is a third generation family business. Like they'll tell you, if you ask questions, they'll actually tell you what they're going to do with it. They just misread the situation. They just thought all I ever cared about was short-term money. And a punchline for this, by the way, we ultimately had an exit on it and it was um, I don't know, somewhere near 6X gross kind of outcome. So extraordinary outcome, but we weren't playing short-term and we weren't playing for just one stakeholder. We played long-term, we played for all the stakeholders and it turned out really well. But here's the point. Like, if you don't ask those kinds of questions, you'll never know. But one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book is if you want to ask questions that make your investment banker give you a talking to in the hallway, because those are actually the important ones. The easy ones, those don't matter. The hard ones, show me the org chart. Show me your org chart and where where are all my people going to fit in this? Now, look, I'm not saying that you're not going to get through M&A as an example without some people just being redundant. Like that's the real world. But it sure is good to know, right? If you don't ask the question, and here's the scary part. If you never ask these questions, you have plausible deniability. I didn't know they were going to fire half the people. I didn't know they were going to, you know, rip out the bottom half of the customer base. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Like it's your job. It's your job to ask these really hard questions and it's your job to figure out what you want. And so I looked in the world, no one's talking about this stuff because most people don't get to sell something twice, nor have they been through this experience and now they're a professional investor. So I started to get a lot of data points around this and no one else was talking about it. And like many things, if not me, then who? And I have to do it. And it was way harder than I thought it was going to be. And it took way longer than I thought it was going to take. And it was absolutely worth it. There's not anything in the world like getting an email from an owner, just like out of the blue, somebody that I don't know that just read the book. And it says something to the effect of, you saved me. I was about to sell it to somebody and I went and asked them these questions and I had no idea how bad it really was. Or wow, we had a really good conversation and we're actually all aligned with the whole family about what we want out of this. And I get those emails regularly where some owner said, this made a difference and this helped me be comfortable caring about more than money in a transaction. Man, those give me a lot of, lot of energy. So I'm, I'm very glad I did it. And I think that the world needed to have this conversation. And the results prove it out, right? I mean, you've had amazing success and I want to thank you for coming on. It's been incredible. I know this was a long time to get scheduled, but I'm glad we could get it down on tape. And I definitely encourage people to check out the book, check out the team in general. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of the platform that you've built with just incredible people. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed the conversation, please do leave a, a rating and a comment and let us know. Sonny, a question I ask people on the show, is there a, a daily practice that you have in your life that helps bring you peace? There is, and it's coffee. It's the funniest thing. It's not for, it's not for the reason, like there's this moment. So that- I've got that, mine right here. Yeah, that first morning cup. So I've got this amazing coffee maker and I, I started drinking coffee in the military and military coffee is like, it's the worst stuff you could possibly imagine. Like imagine if the gas station actually, you know, let it sit for three days um, and then threw some dirt in it. That's about what we had. But there was this funny thing that, the only time you could drink, and by the way, it took me 25 years to understand this psychology for me about why this coffee thing mattered so much, this sort of ritual around this. You can't drink coffee when you're out doing the hard stuff. So coffee time is like you're back in the womb, you're, you know, it's safe, you're not deep in the woods. There's no like, may, I'm going to make a campfire and make some coffee in the middle of the jungle. That's not how that works. So the the hot coffee experience is one that was a, a deep marker to, hey, you're not doing that stuff anymore. You don't have to be in sort of hyper vigilant, you know, everything could get you mode. You can actually relax. So that that coffee process in the morning, I have learned, don't have rushed mornings, have just at least one cup with no agenda, no work. And, and it's that 
because here's the other side of that for me is that's the time when I get to kind of just surf my brain and not really think about anything in particular and just see what bubbles up and see if sometimes, I don't know, one out of every 10 mornings, there's something that will come out of passively reflective time that will come bubbling up out of that just by being still and quiet. That makes a huge difference for me. So it's, it's nearly meditative. Much of our team meditates, you know, on the crazy end of the world, we often meditate to kick off meetings because this idea of presence is so important. If we're distracted and thinking about 700 other things, we're generally not happy and we're not terribly effective. And if we can bring all of our energy and attention and focus to the moment, then we'll be better humans and we'll be better investors. It's a good answer. Not what I was expecting, but I like it. I'm a huge coffee fan myself and I agree. Quiet morning time is worth a lot, very valuable. Sonny, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been tremendous. If people are interested in learning more about the firm or investing or the investments you all are making, what's the best way for them to find out more? Yeah, the best way to find out more about our investment business is satoricapital.com. That's S-A-T-O-R-I and the word capital.com. And if you're looking for more information about the book, just my name, sonnyvanderbeck.com, and um, you can find some more information about the book there. Awesome. Sonny, thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Enjoyed it. See you soon. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection. The lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.